We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we focus on how pop culture influences our appreciation of Judaism and how Judaism influences our understanding of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. And today we're focusing on the new Netflix series, The Chair, the comedy drama starring Sandra Oh, Shana Tova, Gamar Khatimatova. Mike, why don't you tell us about The Chair? Shana Tova, Gamar Khatimatova, Jesse, sure. So The Chair, as you mentioned, streaming on Netflix is a comedy slash drama or a dramedy, or I think what uh, just is now called a comedy um, in the world of streaming, uh, because uh, apparently we like our comedies uh, uh, dark and dark. dramatic nowadays. Uh, but uh, but this is a really uh, um, well done show, as you mentioned, starring Sandra Oh, the great Sandra Oh, as Professor Jiyun Kim, who has been uh, newly appointed as chair, the first uh, woman and woman of color chair of the English department at um, a fictional Ivy League-ish university called Pembroke University. Uh, and she gets in this position, you know, wanting to shake things up a little bit, wanting to rejuvenate a struggling department. Uh, as, uh, as, as we know, the, the humanities uh, have had a, a rough go of it uh, of late um, in the Mike, real what world. Did, what did you major in in college? I majored in history. So I was a humanities major. Yeah. Uh, what about you? I majored in religion. Yeah, good for well, you. I, I, I knew <laughs> I would be a rabbi. So easy way right. out. Right. So, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, now all the, uh, all, all the money and attention goes to, you know, the, the sciences, the STEM uh, majors, the STEM departments, but um, uh, the uh, humanities departments at major universities uh, tend not to get as much love nowadays. Uh, and so uh, Professor Kim Sandro's character uh, is uh, appointed chair of this department to kind of uh, shake things up, although it becomes apparent uh, to her in the, in the course of the show that, uh, that, that really, you know, she's uh, been put in this position or that she feels that she's been put in this position uh, so that when the ship goes down, uh, it'll look like a woman of color was the one that sunk it. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's a, a show about uh, the, uh, the drama and racial dynamics of higher education, the, um, the, the interesting conversations that happen right now um, that are raging right now in, in some cases around free speech on campus. Um, uh, Sandro's character is, like we mentioned, made the new chair of the department of uh, the English department at Pembroke University. She's trying to ensure the tenure of a young black uh, colleague named uh, Yaz, uh, who is played by uh, uh, Nana Mensa. Uh, and she has a, nego- she has a, a relationship with the superstar English professor uh, at the university, uh, Bill Dobson, who's played by Jay Duplass. Uh, Brilliantly played by Jay Duplass. Yes, great, great performance. Big fan and, of the Duplass uh, brothers. Yes. Uh, and uh, so uh, um, Bill Dobson, Jay Duplass is, is navigating, is 
uh, as the show unfolds, um, is navigating both a personal uh, crisis, his uh, uh, wife's death, um, and then ultimately a professional crisis as well that threatens to embroil not only the whole English department, but the whole uh, university. We'll get into that in, in just a moment. Uh, meanwhile, um, we are given a window into Professor Kim's uh, home and family life, um, a, an adopted uh, daughter with whom she has uh, tension, uh, a, uh, a Korean, an elderly Korean father um, uh, who uh, it has very mixed feelings about uh, both her chosen uh, career path um, and her uh, family choices. Uh, and uh, the show, like you said, you know, has uh, elements of, of very um, uh, uproarious, even if somewhat dry comedy, um, not a lot of broad comedic moments, um, and, uh, and the drama unfolding of, of navigating um, uh, racial and speech-related tensions um, uh, and ageist-related tensions um, in the university setting. So let's just uh, dive into it, Jesse. What did you think of the chair? Um, I thought there were parts that were really funny, and I thought there were parts that were really, really funny because of how spot on they were. Um, Mike, you and I both, uh, we went to college together. Um, I think there was something to the idea of the sort of uh, ivory tower uh, beliefs of college students uh, and of professors that you sort of create this uh, utopia where you think that you are able to make real changes in the world. Um, I, I, what really stood out to me was um, the cancel culture nature of the show where, um, listen, don't get me wrong. Uh, when JJ Plas's character, uh, he in passing sort of says hell Hitler, uh, but he is criticizing um, tyranny and dictatorship uh, and making a reference to the Third Reich in a negative way, but somebody gets it on camera and, and posts it and then they demand his resignation. Um, that type of sort of cancel culture and debate about free speech on college campuses is very real. Yeah, well, it's interesting that the show never uses the terminology of cancellation or canceling or cancel culture. And I think it, it you know deliberately tries to avoid it, it's interesting because I didn't read um, uh, Dobson's uh, Nazi salute um, in class as um, as a criticism of Nazism so much as a, a sort of sarcastic reference to it sure. in a larger conversation about um, absurdism and fascism and, and how it uh, relates to literature. And I and I thought, you know, it's. Obviously, you know, students captured, you know, that one moment on camera and and then, you know, looped it and tweeted it um, totally devoid of any context and went after him uh, as an individual, went after his career, went after the university um, because of, I think, well-grounded offense to using um, that kind of salute, even in a even in a you know sarcastic way, um, I think that there's um, you know argument to be made that it's it you know even in that kind of setting it's it's not appropriate or at least in poor taste. Um, but it, it does raise an interesting question of you know um, you know should um, you know wh where does the line get drawn 
um, about you know the the references to use of um, you know that kind of um, uh, iconography and um, and humor um, in the public square, much less in in universities. And I think that the show is really you know kind of I don't think that it comes down very hard on the side that like obviously these kids are you know are making a big deal out of not all that much, and Dobson is in the right, I think it actually makes, paints the picture as being much more complicated than that. Yeah, I think that's true. But I think it also shows that uh, they don't really even give him a chance to, to defend himself. Um, but part of well, his but, defense, but you, but part listen, of his defense also, is, is also, this is absurd, right? I was making, I, I, I made a comment in passing to, right, speak to how absurd this is. Um, and I think it really speaks to um, how carefully people who are in public roles, like professors, you should be when they know that there's a uh, anybody has a camera in their pocket and everything that they uh, say, especially for somebody who lectures, right? Especially for somebody like you and I who give sermons uh, on each Shabbat that uh, that those, that those are are forever recorded and can be criticized uh, however somebody wants to yeah you know it's i mean it's 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 really tricky and it's really interesting i mean the you know the um you know i think a good argument can be made that the you know the the prevalence of recording devices um in, you know in and of itself um is stifling of free speech and the free exchange of ideas. Um, I think that, you know, as someone, you know, for whom, you know, not quite on the um, uh, extreme level that was portrayed in the chair, but, um, you know, that I've experienced, you know, people, you know, uh, taking things that I've said in sermons, um, you know, wildly out of context and, um, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, sharing, you know, snippets of quotes on social media um, as in an attempt to, you know, gin up um, controversy around um, things I said. So like, I, I, you know, and, and it does have a chilling effect on, um, on the, on, on, on a person's ability to, you know, to, to feel like they can uh, um, uh, express meaningful ideas without you know constantly feeling like you're looking over your shoulder about you know um, who might take what out of context when um but at the same time you know um dobson um has opportunities in the show to um to neutralize the the uproar right you know to just say like you know i um, he never really apologizes. Right. I, like I, I, I um, you know, um, it was inappropriate. I really didn't mean to hurt anybody by it. I'm sorry that I hurt you. You know, right. he says, I'm sorry if you if you felt hurt. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, so like so that's that's also a, a factor here is, um, you know, uh, the role of um the role of apology and forget. We also do live in a society in which, um, yes, right. Like, like apologies can be contrived in such a way as to um, neutralize a controversy and elicit forgiveness, even if 
they are not sincere. And at the same time, um, uh, you know, sincere uh, expressions of um, regret and a conversation about what was actually going on um, is met with um, uh, uh, profound, with a profound lack of kind of collective graciousness, right, of, of people. So, I mean, I think this is a time in which we're talking about, you know, the nature of, of sin, particularly sins of speech are highlighted on, on Yom Kippur, right? And, um, and, and obviously speech is unique in, in a sense, because you can't really, like once the words are out of your mouth, you can't really take them back, especially if they're recorded uh, on smartphones and, and tweeted all over the place. Um, but also, you know, Yom Kippur calls on us to practice uh, not only to be forgiving ourselves, um, uh, uh, but um, to seek forgiveness from other people. Sure. So, you know, so here we have that dynamic playing out um, on, on the screen about, you know, how to make amends for sins of speech and also um, how to practice forgiveness, um, uh, even if you don't necessarily feel like the, um, the, there was, there was significant atonement. Um, and it's really worth noting, right, as um, we're in this season of tshuva, can we really expect God to forgive us if we don't do the necessary work to atone, right? If we don't say al uh, chetz, uh, then we aren't really admitting our transgressions, whether they're the communal liturgical transgressions or our own personal actual transgressions. God doesn't forgive us if we don't do the work and people don't forgive us if, if we don't do the real work. And they called him out. The students called him out right away when his apology wasn't a real apology. Uh, and I think there, there's something to that. And part of it was it wasn't genuine. He felt forced into doing it because he thought he had he didn't do anything wrong that he needed to apologize for, um, which, which begs the question, if we hurt or wrong somebody, but we didn't think we did anything wrong, how do you ask for forgiveness when you don't think you did something wrong, but you actually hurt them, right? Those The asking forgiveness and doing tshuva towards another person is actually much harder than the acts of tshuva we do uh, in front of God on Yom Kippur. Right, well, I think that that's fair. I mean, there's, you know, the, the Yom Kippur liturgy, you know, uh, lists out categories of transgression uh, and, uh, and, you know, and, and and general acts, um, I mean, they're specific in the sense of like, you know, a certain kind of speech and a certain kind of um, uh, vow or, you know, whatever it is, um, but whether or not any of our individual actions that we've done over the course of the past year fits into any of these categories is up to the individual who's, who's doing the introspection and worshiping to be able to say, okay, like, yes, like that was a sin that I did. Usually, um, you know, because we, tend to think we tend to have just you know reasons for things that we do and i think by and large people you know do try their best to to um to to be good very few people wake up in the morning and say you know how can i be evil today right most people um uh, uh you know every, people obviously make mistakes but um but you know when we uh when we when we act, we usually have, you know, justification or rationale for how we act. And so that when we hit, get to Yom Kippur and we say, okay, you know, um, 
right? On the sin that we've committed in our conversation, right? And we scroll through our minds of like the different conversations that we've had in the year. And in our minds, you know, none of those conversations were sinful, right? Um, but yet other people who may have experienced those conversations might say like, yeah, actually that conversation that we had, I would, for on your end, I would put in that category of a simple conversation and an objective observer like God might be able to uh, say, yes, that should be in the category, but we subjectively, you know, um, tend to, um, I think tend to uh, err on the side of our own innocence. Because we don't like to admit to ourselves that we've done wrong. Or, or we just, it may not even be a matter of admitting it. It may just be a matter of us not recognizing that we have actually done something wrong, right? And, you know, and sometimes, sometimes it takes being called out um, to be able to say like, oh, like now I see why from your perspective, um, uh, what I did was injurious, right? Um, I may not have intended for it to be injurious, but like now I see why it was, why it was a, a, a you know problematic sure um yeah um uh, I can, learned, mm -hmm, go ahead I, I was just going to shift gears um slightly if that's okay you know i'm really interested in your thoughts and how um there seemed to be a hesitation by the senior faculty members of the english department to evolve um well the show well, well they claim that that it's a a sort of uh, assault on ageism. It was really, you know, it was most signified by when Elliot didn't get enough students in his class. So his class merges with Yaz's class and they're talking about Herman Melville. And one of the students wants to talk about the allegations that, that, that he uh, was uh, an abusive husband and that he beat his wife. And Elliot doesn't want to talk about that because he doesn't think it's relevant to the book. And Yaz says she'll talk about it in her section. Um, and a lack of willingness for some of the senior faculty, the tenured faculty, to evolve their teaching styles and what they talk about in order to help people access the information um, and access the, the greatest authors uh, in, in history. It's sort of like what we're trying to do here, right there. We have some colleagues that are like, why are two rabbis uh, every other week focusing on, you know, a, a different TV show or movie or album or book, right, to, to focus on what is that, how is that relevant to Torah? And part of it is that we enjoy talking about it, but part of it is that we're trying to create new avenues for people to access the, the Torah that we want to teach them. And Elliot is not willing to change the way he teaches Herman Melville and Yaz is. Wait, back up for a second. Are we really getting that criticism? I don't know. I, I, I assume people, uh, there, there are those who think that, that what we do is, is Bittel Torah, um, right. Ooh. A, 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 uh, a waste. And there are those who I believe that what we're doing is, uh, really he door mitzvah, right. I haven't gotten that hate mail yet. So, so, uh, you know, uh, get in my mentions. Haters. Or instead, <laughs> all of you can just uh, rate and review us and give us great reviews. Right. 
Um, no, I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. I think that, you know, it, uh, this is something that, you know, we, we have uh, a lot of friends and, and colleagues and, and mentors who are in the world of academia. And I think it'd be an interesting question to ask them because theoretically tenure is meant to, you know, one, um, insulate uh, academics from the uh, from from the kinds of pressures that Dobson ends up succumbing to in in the chair, right? That you that like um, that you have um, academic freedom, that you have the capability of you know of speaking your conscience and and uh, and and teaching things um, without you know fear of you know mob reprisal. What we call in the rabbinate freedom of the pulpit. Freedom of the pulpit, except for except for most rabbis don't have tenure, and so therefore you might have freedom of the pulpit in the sense of like you can't get fired for a sermon that you give, but you could certainly you know lose your job when contract season comes around. Right, right. So, um, so yes, right. We 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 have that, but so anyway, ostensibly that's what tenure is is meant to do. Um, And on the other hand, what it also can do, I imagine, is um, uh, insulate. Uh, te- insulate professors from criticism, from the from the impulse to adapt and to change and to grow. Um, you know the um, you know uh, the um, I forget the name of the the, the character who's the Melville scholar. Um, uh, it's um, Elliot. Elliot, yeah. Sorry, uh, Bob Balaban, uh, who's great in this as as he usually is. Um, so you know he he uh, is preoccupied with Melville uh, not being sufficiently um, uh, acknowledged for his greatness during Melville's lifetime. Lifetime, and that was, I think, uh, uh, a metaphor for him feeling um, not fully appreciated in his own greatness. Um, and yet, you know, will uh, he be forgotten? Also, right, and that he be forgotten. Right, He's also, right. by the way, a former chair of the department. Right. So, you know, so that's obviously his, his anxiety, um, but, the, but he doesn't respond to that anxiety by, you know, actually recognizing that the field of scholarship is changing, that there are um, uh, new ways of thinking about the material that he hadn't yet considered um, uh, as, you know, um, sufficiently serious. Um, so that's the, that's the downside, of course, of tenure um, uh, is that it can uh, inhibit, you know, the ability to, to adapt and grow. Um, and, uh, and, and then also, of course, um, you know, being insulated from, uh, from, uh, from, the, from the, you know, pressures, uh, you know, uh, people watching over your shoulder for everything that you say, lest you might get fired, um, also, you know, uh, potentially enables uh, behavior like Dobson's, but potentially worse. I mean, there, there are probably, you know, even worse examples of this uh, in and more egregious examples in academia of, uh, of, of professors using um, their insulation from reprisal um, to, you know, say or do um, uh, hateful things under the guise of academic freedom. Yeah. Um, I wonder, though, how much this is, this is uh, about, like I said, a refusal to evolve uh, in the way the the content is taught, uh, right? It's the blockbuster Netflix analogy that blockbuster looked at Netflix and they said, what a stupid idea. 
why would people pay to have DVDs, like old school Netflix, have DVDs shipped to their home? And then Blockbuster ended up trying to catch up and doing that as well, and it was too late. And by the time Blockbuster started shipping DVDs to your home, Netflix already had a streaming service out. And by the time Blockbuster went bankrupt, uh, Netflix had original content out. The movies were, were the same. It's just the way that they offered it was different in a way that was more accessible and meaningful to a different generation. Uh, well, I loved spending an hour on Saturday nights going up and down the aisles to see what movie we we're going to rent until eventually I found the VHS and that it was all sold out. Uh, that is not of interest to the current generation. And they had to evolve how they were introduced to pop culture. Well, right. But, just but, listening to our podcast. Yeah, but it's... <laughs> But it's, but it's not just the medium that's changed or the vehicle that's changed. It's also the content. You know, movies, are, uh, movies have changed um, in the last uh, two decades um, in part as a response to, um, you know, to the rise of, of streaming. I mean, there's, uh, there, there are many reasons for Marvel's success. Um, but I think one of them is, you know, mostly the, because we talk about it on, on this podcast. Yeah, we, they get they get the pop Torah bump, of course. Um, but I think it's also because you know studios came to recognize that um, that that you know uh, big spectacle um, and serialized installments um, are what is going to get people to keep on coming back to the multiplex. Um, and uh, and so you know so there's been a shift in um uh in uh in content uh in you know motion picture content uh in the multiplex first of all that has become more like tv because tv is really what uh where where we're in the golden age when it comes to streaming um and also a recognition that people are either going to like you're going to get a return on your investment if you spend you know half a billion dollars making a movie that has a lot of you know, uh, um, splash and spectacle, or you're going to make a return on your investment, making something that's like really cheap, like a horror movie, um, that like a lot of people will go see and it didn't cost a lot of money to make. Um, and there's not a lot of things, you know, in between, if you go back and look at like the, you know, the, the best picture winners, you know, from the like eighties and nineties versus, um, uh, versus today, um, you know, there's, I think a market difference. Like there, there aren't those like mid range budget, uh, movies that are really coming out today where they exist, they're on streaming and that's, you know, um, so maybe you'll see some of those kinds of movies start to come back. Um, you know, it's like sunset Boulevard, right? Uh, uh, I didn't get, I didn't get smaller. It's the pictures that changed. Right. Um, so, and, and I, and there was a lot of that in, uh, in, in the chair too, that, um, that the um, both the medium for um, for you know uh, getting the content and there's a little piece in the show where uh, uh, some of the academics deride you know uh, where the dean says like the people you know that we want to give the kids opportunities to produce content and like several of the professors like oh god content like um, uh, but um, uh, the, the vehicle has changed um, and also the, the content is being changed too, right? Um, and some of that is in response to the vehicle changing. Some of that is just in response to the world changing. 
Yeah. Um, you know, it's a chicken and egg issue. Did the vehicle cause the content to change, right? Did the increase in streaming services, for example, um, change the way uh, movies are made and how we access them, right? Did streaming services change the movie theater business and what movies would go out in theaters and what would be streamed to video. So too, right, do people of a new generation with new thoughts and accessing content differently, uh, do they change the way we understand a topic or do they, um, are they changed because of access to that topic? Meaning, right, that it's really at the root of what we're saying, that the intersection of pop culture and Judaism, so too is with Judaism, does our understanding and appreciation of the world that we're living in change our understanding of Torah? Or does our understanding of Torah, because we're of a different generation uh, than those who came before us, allow us to access this world differently than they would have? Yeah, I don't, I, maybe it's not an either or. Maybe it's not an either or. Okay, I'll take it. Um, I do. I, I can't help, and it's it's difficult, you know, for for us acknowledging this as two men to talk about. Um, some of it is ageism. Um, some of it is really um, gender biases, and the the way that Elliot treats Yaz as his teaching assistant. Uh, likely because she's a woman, because she's a woman of color. And, uh, you know, I think we have to address that and acknowledge that, that the stuff, the, the crap that um, Jiyun dealt with, so much of it was because she was a woman, um, right? They acknowledge that, that it was the women who were assigned to make the food for the department celebrations and that, and that sort of thing. Um, and if we're really truly going to evolve, it's by um, making sure that women have a seat at the table and they're they're propped up. It's crazy that we have to say this in, in 2021, but we know the realities of inequality still in the workplace and in society. Um, and it's played out through sort of the dark comedy of the show, so much so that the show ends, spoiler alert, with a, a vote of no confidence and she's voted out as, as Dean and Elliot right away is like, I'll, I'll step in. I, I'm happy to replace you as Dean. And she's like, screw that. If, I, if I'm you know, getting kicked out, I'm making sure you don't replace me. And she replaces it. Um, she's replaced with Joan, you know, a woman who never got her due of all her years uh, as sort of an adjunct faculty member, an associate faculty member, associate professor. No, I listen. I think it's a. I, I think it's a really good question and a good point. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I wonder how um, separable those issues are, right? I think that um, you know, uh, Elliot's um, treatment of Yaz is both because she's you know is not both because there's three things, right? Because she's younger, because she's a woman, because she's a woman of color, right? The 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 treatment of um, of uh, Sandra O's character, Dr. Kim, right, um, is because she's young, because she's a woman, because she's a woman of color, right? Um, and you know, like like I, like we said at the beginning, you know, it's at least Sandra O oh starts to wonder, you know, is um, is 
you know, is she being put in this role, you know, so that they can like pin the demise of the English department on um, a younger woman of color and and absolve um, the older white men um, from their share of responsibility for for the decline of the department. And, And by the way, I mean, it's really not any of their faults individually. It's just you know, we, we've come as a society to devalue um, the humanities um, uh, and to uh, to prioritize um, science and technology. And, you know, the closest thing we have to valuing the humanities is is like entertainment, right? Um, so, you know, there's a reason why we're doing pop Torah and not like lit Torah. Um, right. You know, so, um, so I think that that's... Because if we talked about Herman Melville... People want to listen to our podcast in the same um, way they don't sign up for Elliot's let me, class. Let me also ask this, because I know you're a Hamilton fan. Um, is the only way to show that, like, you, you know, can can talk about um, history and high culture in a way that's with it nowadays to make a rap, uh, like, a, 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 you know, wisecracking rap about it? I think it's the only way that people, the masses, I guess, to access it. It's not about to show that you know your history. But it's if you want to, uh, it's about creating uh, access to content that is a very narrow um, interest to most people, right? I didn't read the Hamilton biography. It was like 800 pages. Lin-Manuel Miranda read it on a beach. I wasn't going to. Um, but that's not, that's not what my beach reads are. Um, <laughs> But, but he turned it into a musical so that many more people can access that that history now. Right. And in fairness to the to, to the chair, you know, I, I read Moby Dick in high school. I enjoyed it when I read it in, in high school. Um, I don't think I prefer that, the book of Jonah personally. Um, uh, and young people are Mincha. <laughs> there's there's actually a great sequence in in Moby Dick. I don't know if you've read it, um, where a uh pastor um uh before he gets on the, before Ishmael gets on the Pequod, um, he's in a church and the pastor is uh, preaching about, uh, about Jonah and about repentance. It's, um, it's a really powerful scene, but anyway, it, it never occurred to me. And I don't think that we discussed this in high school. Um, this just shows, you know, the, 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 um, the, the change in, in, um, kind of collective awareness over the last 20 years. Like, I don't think that we ever mentioned the fact that there were no women on board the Pequod, right. Um, that there was, you know, um, uh, th- th- there's a significant substrain of, of you know, um, either intentional or unintentional homo- homoeroticism in, uh, in in Moby Dick, um, and you know, and so I think that the show is 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 pointing out like there are layers that are just being uncovered of old things now because of the contributions um, and and uh, inclusion of voices of people from different perspectives. I think that that's profoundly Jewish. Um, although I think that Judaism in, in some cases is behind the times on that too, of uh, bringing uh, more women, more people of color, more LGBT people, um, people with special needs and so on and so on into the conversation about uh, Jewish texts, about Jewish tradition and, and bringing those lenses um, to unpack layers of the tradition that hadn't been uncovered before. Um, I think that that's very Jewish in the sense that like we um, historically have celebrated being a multivocal 
tradition. The Bible is multivocal. The Talmud is multivocal. The Midrash is multivocal. Um, and yet for too much of Jewish history, um, it's been dominated by the uh, position of um, heteronormative um, men and often, at least in American Judaism, white men. White men, right. Well, you know, and we don't need to strive for perfection. Um, and I don't think the chair, right, that's how the show ends. Like, like at least start somewhere. But the idea of giving Yaz tenure was to start somewhere. And she ended up going to another university because she's like, that's not enough. But but, uh, but, but Sandra O's character, uh, Ji-Yoon, was like, well, we have to start somewhere. And I think... Um, the message of Yom Kippur is not that we're expected to be perfect. In fact, we begin Yom Kippur by acknowledging that we're not going to be perfect, that we're going to make more mistakes in the year ahead than we made in this year, but that we strive to be better. And I think the message of the chair is a message for all of us to not settle, right? The, the minute you settle, you've failed to not um, get stuck in the way things were, but to be willing to evolve for the better by being a more inclusive um, institution. And the more that our synagogues, our schools, and in academia, our universities are more inclusive, the more that we can uh, give access to our Torah to as many people as possible. Amen. And I think that that's a good prayer um, as we um move through this high holy day season um, to say, you know, that there is cheshbon uh, nefesh, there's introspection that, that, that we ought to be doing as a Jewish community um, to provide space for that. Um, and insofar as, you know, um, our Torah, um, you know, is very influenced by and emanates in, in a lot of ways from um, the academic world, um, uh, you know, uh, is 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 the Torah we are learning and teaching um, uh, responsive enough to um, the the needs and sensibilities of, uh, of of today's Jews? May it be so. And until next time, I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky, and I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Take care. <laughs>